So we can go ahead and begin the question and answer session then. Uh, just one thing I wanted to clarify before we started is I feel like I may have given in the impression during my talk that, you know, if people get angry about us or at us, you know, it's all their fault. We don't have any responsibility. Um, of course, you know, each person has their own emotions that they are the owners of. Yet at the same time, if, you know, people are becoming upset with us, especially multiple people, we, of course, also have to ask ourselves, am I doing something unskillful without even knowing it? Or am I doing something that's just kind of not the proper way of going about things? So we can use these things, even these unskillful emotions to, of others, to look at ourselves. And that's what we have to do, make sure we're always careful about how we conduct ourselves and present ourselves. Sorry, they wrote in two different directions here. In many ways, I think that aversion is the other face of clinging, attachment, and vice versa. Can you talk about that? For me, this is usually manifest as annoyance, irritation, versus strong preference. Yeah, that, you're exactly right. Craving and aversion are, you know, two sides of the same coin. We can even think about it in terms of, like, if I crave for something, it means I also have aversion to not having that thing. And likewise, if we have aversion towards something, it means that we're craving to not have that there. So in fact, they can almost be used interchangeably as long as we you know, change a, a few words here and there. Um, <clears throat> I guess that's what you're asking, I think. Yesterday, during meditation, I found myself releasing resentment of an issue I thought I had released years ago. I felt this time it was fully released at the level of the heart. Can subconscious pain, fear, resentment be fully released, or is it a continuous return such that each time we release more and more and pain is less and less? Um, well, essentially, so long as you don't have the root of hatred gone, there's always the possibility of those kinds of... Uh, you know, thoughts coming back. That's why we have to fully understand why it is that we have aversion in the, the first place. Metta can kind of clear away the bamboo of a, you know, a forest, you're trying to clear bamboo, but we have to also dig up the root, which is a, you know, obviously another important point. Otherwise, we're just going to keep chopping, chopping, chopping all our lives. Some new thing will come and bother us and so on. Uh... So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, the goal there, that in order to, we have to eradicate that thing at the root. A few questions. When practicing metta, should the focus be on self or on others? How do we imagine self and I during the practice? Suppose that we are cultivating a no-self. Uh... It's a good question. Obviously, we say, you know, give yourself, you know, goodwill, but then we also say, oh, um, that which you take as yourself is not actually yourself. 
But the fact of the matter is that we, as unenlightened beings, do take ourselves as self. And so we have that phenomenon, arisen phenomenon of, you know, I am that we have. So you can essentially, you know, focus on that. So as to say, like, you know, may I be well, happy and peaceful. There's that vague notion of what I am. And even if it's a delusion, it's still there. Of course, bear in mind that um, <clears throat> we use this just as a means of going forward, not to like start clinging more to the sense of self or anything like that. Um, so yeah, that's the advice I would give. And of course, when it comes to other beings, the, the way I usually look into it is uh, just generally thinking of you know, what constitutes a being. Like, how do I distinguish all of you from the cushions as your beings, the cushions are not beings. There's various characteristics that uh, uh, show that to me. And we can think of those characteristics when we um, give metta to others. Uh, I found it very difficult to practice metta on simply abstract ideas and concepts. Uh, something specific targets as my thoughts cannot be grounded. How to overcome this? I suppose I'm not quite sure what exactly distinguishes an abstract idea from a specific target. Perhaps you're thinking of the idea of towards all beings as opposed to you know, your Uncle Joe or something like that. Um, theoretically, it should be the same uh, thing, although, of course, I do understand that it can become hard to understand and visualize like what all beings, those characteristics would be. I think you can remind yourself of the, the characteristics of beings, how you know they have consciousness, they have motion to them, and all these various traits that distinguish beings from not beings. Should we practice breath, I assume you mean mindfulness of breathing, first before going to metta practice, or should the breathing metta meditation be done simultaneously? It can really be either or. There's no like one way of doing these things. You can, you know, use the breath as kind of a timer for you know establishing metta. You know, uh, timing your thoughts with the breathing that can be relaxing, or you can start with mindfulness of breathing to ground you, and then move on to that kind of more abstract uh, spreading goodwill. But ultimately, that's something you have to just experiment with, with yourself and. Uh, see which one you respond best to, which one is getting what you need to do going. I can't give you like an overarching answer. These quote-unquote dark or quote-unquote unwholesome aspects of the self, such as anger, could they be embraced rather than controlled? embraced in the, that they could be viewed as a step up the emotional ladder, despair, depression, anger, frustration, hope, faith, trust. Uh, well, one clarification, of course, is that none of these things are of the self. The problem is that we appropriate these things as these are my feelings and wholesome, unwholesome qualities and so on. Uh, but that's a, a bit of a long matter. Could they be embraced rather than controlled? Well, I suppose they could be embraced if you, you know, it's kind of like embracing a hot coal. You can embrace it if you want, but the results might not be so pretty. I don't, I don't really think the idea of, uh, 
what you're saying here, like, oh, it's kind of like a, a step up is really what I've ever thought about. I, I don't really exactly know how that would work. Um, <clears throat> I think the idea is more along the lines of recognizing what is unwholesome and also perhaps more importantly, why is it unwholesome? Like asking why are certain um, states of the mind unwholesome? What makes them that way? Uh, as opposed to um, we can do the same thing for wholesome things like metta. Why is metta wholesome? What's good about that? What is it? You know, what are those intentions of metta rooted in? And that's how we gain understanding of wholesome and unwholesome, which the Buddha describes as a uh, a right understanding of phenomena when we can uh, separate them into these two categories. Can you elaborate on what practices will encourage equanimity and its resultant tempering of compassion, a wiser, more skilled compassion, so to speak? I think the, uh, the way that I can think of is obviously just kind of using that reflection I mentioned, that idea that no matter how much compassion you have for a being or beings, even no matter how much you, you know, help them in the way we traditionally think of helping them with you know, food, money, clothing, whatever kind of charity work we do, that ultimately we have to recognize both in them and in ourselves that we are the ones who are responsible for our suffering or lack thereof. Certainly it's good and it's meritorious and it's encourageable to help other beings in these more mundane ways. But when it comes down to it, even if you give someone all the charity in the world, they might squander it, or they might you know, still fall into some kind of calamity. And so just reflecting on how if you don't have that equanimity, you'll f potentially fall into you know, more clinging and attachment is usually enough to kind of temper that. Um, you could also think about you know, impermanence. That's a very good way to look into that, <clears throat> realizing that... Um, you know, the states of all beings are, of course, impermanent. Their lives, even their lives, are impermanent. How they are right now is impermanent. And you can't control that. You can't change the fact that these things are going to change. And so when we reflect on impermanence in that kind of way, the mind begins to understand that, oh, if I cling to that impermanent thing, it's going to slip through my fingers and then I'll be upset. That's how we train the mind to recognize, you know, what is unsatisfactory by seeing that it's impermanent. Doing compassionate acts is energizing, but meditating on metta becomes tiring, even boring. How can I build equanimity in my metta practice? I feel like these are like two different questions. So I answered the second one, I think, but the first one we can address. <clears throat> of course, that's a problem with any meditation. We can find ourselves getting bored because meditation's not always the most stimulating activities. And that's entirely the point of it. If the mind is getting caught up in stimulating, exciting things, and it's not seeing the, what's underlying those things, like what is the structure of them, what is the nature of them, so my advice would be, if you have boredom arise, you should look at the boredom. Like, why are you getting bored? What does the mind want to grab onto that it thinks it's so important, as opposed to, you know, practicing your meditation? 
especially here, what are you going to go do? Go on a walk, drink some tea in the Sangha hall and quiet. The mind wants to run away from these things, but it, you know, here it's a little harder. Of course, at home, much more distractions. But the same principle applies, asking why is the mind bored? And what you'll find is that by investigating the nature of boredom, you become less bored, because that's a pretty interesting question in of itself. So these kinds of things can, we can apply to combat those kinds of things. Suppose you were in a dysfunctional relationship. One partner is selfish, lying, unskillful. You recognize it, forgive him, but decide to, decide to disengage because you can't change him. But he hangs on, <coughs> will not let it go. Uses guilt to keep you in a relationship. You recognize his suffering, but he also, but he has to practice. You can't do it for him. What is a compassionate thing to do? To leave, sever the relationship, or stay and be his enabler? Well, I certainly wouldn't recommend, you know, staying in that kind of thing. You know, sometimes the compassionate route is not always the one that's going to be pleasant to the receiver. Even the Buddha says with regards to his own speech that sometimes what people need to hear is not what they want to hear. Likewise with actions. Sometimes what you need to do is not what what that person, you know, wants you to do. Of course, don't take that too far, saying like, oh, I need to punch him in the face even though he doesn't want it. There has to be temperament of that with wisdom, of course. So, in this kind of thing, it's very clear that this relationship is not doing this other person any favors. As you say, it's enabling them so that they can, you know, start trying to guilt you into staying. Sometimes, and you know, this is kind of a, of course, trite thing, you hear it so often, but sometimes losing these kinds of relationships can make some people realize what they were doing wrong. They can learn from that. And so clearly enough, if uh, this person's not getting anywhere with you and you can't help them, then sometimes the most compassionate thing is to, you know, let them loose and hope that they'll, you know, surface up and, you know, have the strength and wisdom to understand what they did wrong and move from there. But you shouldn't feel that you need to, you know, be their nanny or caretaker or something, especially uh, if you've, you know, tried to help him before. Of course, I don't, you know, it's not to say, you know, dump a person immediately the first time they don't do something you don't like. But if you've already been trying and working through that, then, yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong and uncompassionate about, uh, you know, leaving the person either. <clears throat> Monks are human beings too, so you think. No, no, we are, I think. Anyway, so interpersonal conflicts among monastics are bound to arise. Do the dynamics of these problems and their potential solutions tend to differ somewhat from those of lay people? Um, You may be surprised to hear this, but not really. You know, it happens, it does. You know, people get into disagreements and arguments and... What one hopes, of course, is that if there's two monastics who have a a problem with each other, that, you know, being that they're hopefully dedicated to the Dhamma, especially the Vinaya, which talks about removing conflicts between monastics, that 
hopefully they're the kind of people who are willing to, you know, look at themselves and say, what am I doing wrong in this situation? But as you say, monks are also infallible humans. Some are more, you know, straightforward and honest than others. And so, yeah, a lot of times these things can be just as petty as the conflicts between lay people, as much as I hate to admit it. I'm not pointing fingers at myself or any monastics here, but just from what I've you know, observed in my uh, time. Um, so yeah, I mean, the solutions are all the same. And actually, the Buddha gives a kind of humorous kind of uh, quote about this. There were some monks who were quarreling with each other, and he basically looks at them and says, you know, even raiders and bandits can get along with each other. You guys can't even do that. What's wrong with you? And I imagine if I were hearing that from the Buddha, I'd be like, Jeez, like ashamed of that. And, uh, and it's also like, uh, maybe it's a little different in that there is that monastic structure. Like, you know, there can always be a senior monastic or something that can, you know, be a, that mediator if the need arises. There's uh, rules in the Vinaya about treatment of other monks. Like you're obviously not supposed to speak harshly to them or hit them and those kinds of things. Those are, you know, precepts that we take like not speaking harshly to other monastics, not hitting other monastics. That's one, too. So, uh, yeah, these are some things to take into consideration. But overall, as you say, you know, we're all human unless we're enlightened. But then that's a little different story. I don't know if enlightened beings argue with each other. <laughs> I find myself in my head when I feel anger or jealousy... Immediately, when I figure it out, I do metta phrase for myself or others. I redirect to metta is becoming a habit, which I like. However, it do doesn't always work, but I still do it. Is this good? Continue doing this? Or am I avoiding anger? Do I need to investigate the anger or jealousy deeper? That's a, that's a good question, of course. The question like, you know, if anger is arisen, do I investigate the anger or do I, you know, work as hard as I can to kind of get rid of it? I would say that a lot of times it's going to depend on, you know, your own skill. Like, if you see annoyance in the mind, it's not necessarily the idea of like, oh, swat it away immediately. There can also be the investigation into the nature of it, which can also, you know, work to undermine that as well. As I've been saying, you understand anger, you don't have anger anymore. You see that, oh, the justifications, the rationale behind this anger, it's, it's not justified. And then the mind, you know, sees it as unpleasant and, you know, turns away from it. We can use, you know, the more uh, brute force method if we can really feel that it's, you know, something that is in danger of really spiraling out of control. That, of course, obviously if the mind's obsessed and pulled by anger, there's going to be no investigating the anger. The mind gets just too caught up in it because it's too strong. And what you'll find as you practice metta more and more is that those kind of stronger pangs of anger occur less often. And when they do occur, they're you know, not as strong. And so, and so in those instances, you can kind of work with the anger so long as you can keep your mindfulness about you. It's really a matter of you know, how strong can your mindfulness be established? Can you establish your mind so that you can see aversions arising without the mind latching on to those same aversions? And that's a delicate balance. 
So I'd say the, the safest thing, if you're not sure, is to address the anger in that direct kind of way until you really feel confident about it. Because that's important when we're doing these kinds of investigations, to have a <clears throat> confidence about us that, you know, I can handle this. I can handle what's going to, I'm going to see what's going to happen. And that comes just with experience. About two weeks ago, I developed tinnitus. I think I'm saying that right. Although I am accustomed to environmental noise in meditation practice, I find this pretty distracting. It is always there, like the breath. Would you recommend ignoring it, focusing on it, or something else? Well, I'm sorry to hear that you've developed that. Um, <clears throat> maybe seeing a doctor about it could help. I mean, it's not something you have to necessarily live with if something can be done. But of course, it might be something like that, too. In that case, I mean, it's a question of saying ignore it, but oftentimes I found it's kind of hard to ignore things like that. The mind is just going to grab onto it. And so we can kind of, if that's not possible, just, you know, letting it be there, you can also investigate the mind's relationship with it. Like, is that noise causing suffering? And asking again the question, why? And what you'll probably find is, I don't like that noise. I want it to go away. It's annoying. You know, we have expectations of what meditation is. Meditation is quiet, no noise, and that's not happening now. I don't like that. So instead, you can kind of circumvent that whole thought cycle and say, oh, this is now meditation. I'm meditating on the mind's reaction and relationship to this, you know, whatever noise that you're having. In, in a way of speaking, it's the same as with any noise that we encounter when we're, you know, practicing. We can ignore it or we can also investigate it if the, you know, the mind is getting pulled in that direction. But that, of course, again, requires that consistent practice of training the mind not to get swept up by these things. So I, I, I do sincerely hope that you either find a you know, solution for that or are able to work through it. I think I might be missing something. Me too. <laughs> when we practice metta while meditating, do we think of goodwill while we focus on the breath? Or do we just start with goodwill and focus on the breath exclusively? <clears throat> Again, as I uh, mentioned before, it can really be either or. I mean, the, the most important thing with this is not focusing necessarily on the breath, but focusing on the object of your goodwill, whether that be an individual or the general all beings. The breath is generally more used as kind of a, almost like a, what is that thing that the musicians use? It goes like, it it's a, keeps the, the metronome. Yeah, it's kind of like that in a way of speaking. It keeps us kind of keeps the metta more grounded from spilling out into just distracted thoughts. It keeps us grounded in the body, so to say. So even being mindful of the posture whilst you're cultivating thoughts of metta can be helpful for that. So breath, posture, whatever kind of thing. So it's not a matter of doing, you know, like anapanasati whilst doing, you know, cultivating thoughts of goodwill. Those are somewhat separate things. But at the same time, we can also be aware of the breathing and use it to 
supplement the practice. Does anger have any use, such as to stop abuse or set one's boundaries? Sometimes people don't listen when we make a point nicely. That's a good point. <clears throat> but the Buddha is very clear about anger. He says in one simile, it's very famous, called the simile of the saw, that even if bandits were to sever you limb by limb with a two-handed saw, he who gave my rise to a mind of anger would not be um, fill, fulfilling my teaching. So the Buddha is very clear when he says that no anger is ever wholesome or justified or anything like that. Yet at the same time, that also doesn't mean that we have to become doormats or something like that. Even the Buddha, sometimes out of compassion, like would throw people out of the you know, assembly hall if they weren't focusing properly or they were being distracting. It wasn't that he was angry about it, it was more that he was acting out of compassion for other people. So there's a, there's a, a very, quite pertinent question. Can we learn to you know, be forward and direct with people without being angry at them? A very difficult balance, and I'm not so good at it myself just yet, but I think it's possible. And so, yeah, I mean, even if the, obviously if there is a, a situation where you're constantly getting overwhelmed by these kinds of emotions, then you know, either separating yourself or confronting the problem can be helpful because when it comes down to it, this is all a, a gradual training. <clears throat> that means that there are some things that are just going to, you know, be too overwhelming for us to handle just by being mindfully aware of them. It's going to happen, especially if we're encountering these things having not practiced for a very long time. So there's no shame in trying to, you know, change those external things. Just bear in mind that your best efforts might not accomplish anything. And we have to accept that possibility. Otherwise, we'll just get ourselves more frustrated whenever we try and fix something. Can you please give some exercises to develop concentration? Uh, keep practicing mindfulness. I mean, that, that's really it. You know, mindfulness and concentration go in tandem. Concentration is not this, like, laser-pointed focus on, like, one spot. It's, I liken it more to, like, being focused on the task at hand, i.e. the task of being mindful. <clears throat> What helps with concentration is, of course, things like, you know, metta for dealing with hindrances of the mind. But also, the more we understand the mind, the more easily we can concentrate it. Because we see the mind getting pulled to different things, and we know, oh, why is it getting pulled? As we know why it gets pulled, we begin to not have the mind get pulled at all. Because we recognize that those things are not important, not worth attending to, not skillful to attend to, whatever. And that's a part of our wisdom, recognizing what's skillful, what's unskillful, what the mind can safely you know, dwell on and what we need to bring it back from. So in your, whatever practice you're doing, it's just really a matter of um, you, know, you have 
some kind of distraction and you, you recognize it. You can even ask, you know, oh, what is in this distraction that I find so alluring that the mind wants to jump there? And you recognize that aspect of it as well and then just bring yourself back to what you were, you know, originally focusing on. And this is training the mind to do have this kind of analytical <clears throat> view of even these distractions. We can learn from those things as well. And we can eventually you know, have that control of our thoughts that makes it so that these distractions don't even come up at all. The Buddha talks about how one who is a master of their thoughts is one who is enlightened because they've fully understood the mind and how the mind works. Until that point, we just have to, you know, stick with it. Yesterday, Bhante Ji said, forgiveness is a precursor to metta. Are there meditation techniques and practices that work specifically with forgiveness? There's nothing called like forgiveness meditation or anything like that, at least not what the, the Buddha taught. It's really, <clears throat> I think a part of it is like just what I was saying about the rationalizations for doing metta. You forgive someone um, when you realize that they're, you know, the nature of their actions. That is to say, you, under, you forgive them when you understand that maybe, you know, as I said, they couldn't help themselves in a way of speaking. Not to say they weren't responsible for what they did, but they were just trying to deal with their own suffering. They didn't, they didn't know how. And so they did something that, you know, hurt you. Um, or even at that point, you know, it may not be that we can ever understand the exact motivations for someone doing something, but we can always confidently say that they probably thought they were doing what was going to be best for them at the time. It's just unfortunate that they went about it in the wrong way. That's a, kind of another aspect of that whole train of thought. Whenever we do something at any given moment, it's generally kind of like we're almost calculating. I don't want to use that word too, um, you know, casually, but we're almost like calculating, you know, how are we going to maximize pleasure, minimize pain in this situation? Because of our ignorance and delusion, the calculations are kind of skewed. You know, the numbers are like, the numbers on the screen are representing different numbers, so to say. I don't know if I'm going to go with that simile much further, but anyway, it's like uh, basically people do things because they think it's going to get the best results. But because of delusion and ignorance, in fact, sometimes it's just exactly the opposite. And so seeing that you can kind of you know, forgive people in that way, that that person was just doing what they thought would make them most happy. It's hard to be angry at them when you realize there's a, you know, they didn't know the proper way to conduct themselves. And we can see the same thing in ourselves, of course, too. We have to always bring it back to ourselves and our own actions, looking <clears throat> at how our own minds operate and how they affect others as well. This is just a quick accent question about the talks. Um, you'll find all the talks in this retreat uploaded on the Bhavana Society's YouTube page maybe a week or two after the retreat ends. So all the talks and the Q&As will be available there.
Is it correct to let go of past mistakes by viewing them in a way that you would view an unskillful person? Um, yeah, in a sense, you know, we can apply the same things to ourselves. Because we're ignorant and have delusion and such things. By the way, when I say ignorant, I don't mean like stupid or anything like that. I mean like we have ignorance of the four noble truths of the nature of the mind. Um, anyway, having gotten that out of the way. Yeah, you can forgive yourself for the reason that, yeah, I'm not enlightened. So I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to do unskillful things. It's going to happen. There's, there's no stopping it. Well, we can't, well, I mean, there is stopping it, but, you know, what's done is done, of course. We can use, we can, you know, have a skillful attitude towards past mistakes as well. The Buddha says that having regret and remorse about unskillful actions is, in fact, a good thing. But that has to be tempered so that the regret and remorse doesn't devolve into, you know, self-hatred and depression and such things like that. But we can use the feelings of remorse and regret in skillful ways. We can think about like, oh, when I did this kind of action, which was rooted in this kind of um, aspect of the mind, there was this result and this painful feeling. And we reflect on that and dwell on that. And uh, the Buddha calls that hiri otapa, shame and fear of wrongdoing. Not like a toxic shame or a toxic fear, but basically having that notion to protect ourselves from doing regrettable things. Because we see that, oh, when I do that thing that's regrettable, I feel painful feelings on account of that. We, we dwell on that thought of that enough, and it kind of... Um, severs our wish to do it in the future. You know, if the inclination arises to repeat our past mistakes and we've um, thought about what are the results of our actions, <clears throat> we can either stop the mind and say, oh, you remember that time? Yeah, we're not going to do that again. Or the mind might even just naturally just not, um, um, it, um drive towards those things. But again, that's why it's important to keep past mistakes like, in, with a healthy relationship towards them. It always has to be this um, you know, idea of constantly moving forward, not like harping on what happened in the past. Again, what's done is done. But we can also learn from the past mistakes as well to conduct ourselves more skillfully you know, here and in the future. I'm going to save this one for last because it might take a while. I'll see if I have time. I have more of the third conceit that is an inferiority complex. If I were a dog, I would be the passive one that gets beaten up at the dog park. <laughs> Jeez. Well, maybe it's not that bad. <laughs> but I do tend to put others first more than myself. How does one attain balance and equanimity for oneself? And isn't it better to put others first? Aren't we happier? There's a rather well-known simile that uh, is given. It's about two acrobats. Two acrobats are you know, they're doing some kind of show. There's a master acrobat and the apprentice acrobat. And, you know, they're doing their show, and the master acrobat says to the apprentice, you know, you watch out for me, I'll watch out for you, and then, you know, we'll do our job properly and get paid. 
The apprentice says, actually, that's the wrong way around. I'll look out for myself, and you'll look out for yourself, and then we'll get the good result. So it's this idea that by you know, uh, helping ourselves, by helping, I mean like developing our minds in a proper way, doing things that are genuinely skillfully good for us, we also help other people. It does both. Because when we have that, uh, you know, that healthy relationship with ourselves, excuse me, we'll have more genuine and more sincere relationships with others. You know, we don't want to fall into the trap of, you know, the person who always puts themselves, um, you know, last, that kind of thing. Because what will oftentimes happen is eventually they'll just breed resentment of like, oh, you know, I'm not getting my due pay back from all these people who I put first, that kind of thing. So what's important is to understand that um, it's not better, so to say, to put others first. That also doesn't mean, you know, putting them last either. Like, oh, you know, I'm just going to do me. I don't care about anyone else. But this idea that we have to also realize that, you know, there can be too much of giving ourselves to others. There has to be that balance of, you know, time and effort for developing, you know, our own uh, purity of mind versus, you know, helping others in whatever kinds of ways. It's kind of like, a, I don't know what exactly they call it, but that th- phenomenon of, you know, where therapists and psychologists and so on get burnt out because they're constantly giving other people therapy, but maybe they need a little bit too. And it's affecting, you know, it comes to affect how they do their job, how they can do it properly. It's basically also this idea that we need to have, you know, good health, mentally, physically, so on, to help other people. Otherwise, it's going to be a matter of, uh, you know, not getting the job done quite so um, um, thoroughly and quite so properly. Uh, so yeah, I, I can understand, you know, how it's a, a difficult balance. You know, the idea of you know giving and compassion to others, and we generally think that oh yeah, so I don't have to. I just have to you know extend outside myself and go help people and forget about my own problems. But what you'll find is that that doesn't last forever. That the problems we have are going to come up some point sooner or later. So we have to address those things before that happens. Does Sangha refer to, one, followers of the Buddha who attained enlightenment, and or two, monastic community, and or three, community of practitioners? Well, it depends on what you mean by Sangha. In the most general sense of the word, when we say Sangha, it means basically the fourfold assembly of monks, nuns, lay women, lay men, who are, you know, practicing the Dhamma to the best of their ability. Sometimes it's also used in terms of the monastic community, like, oh, the bhikkhu sangha, the bhikkhuni sangha. Um, When it comes to, like, in terms of the triple gem, like how we pay reverence to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, the sangha there is specifically referring to the four kinds of persons, that is, stream enterers, once-returners, non-returners, and arahants, including the Buddha. So basically, you know, what the Buddha calls Aryasavakas, or noble disciples, those who have attained, you know, entered the path of the Dhamma, 
who are on their way to enlightenment. Those are the, you know, the sangha that we revere in terms of that kind of a, um, a chanting that you may hear sometimes, like Supatipanno Bhagavata Savaka Sango, like that verse, if you've ever heard that before. <clears throat> I have been practicing Vipassana for several years. Nevertheless, the pain in my neck and shoulders still hampers my ability to sit for more than a short while without moving. Thoughts. My thoughts would be that if you know you have a serious pain, it sounds like maybe it's even something that you, you know, just developed in your body. It's not like, oh, I'm just stiff kind of thing, although I can't say for sure. You know, there's, there's no, no problem with moving when the body says it's time to move. It's a question of, you know, is it time to move because the mind is getting upset by it, or is there a genuine, like, the body is saying, oh, if we sit like this much longer, there's going to be a problem. That's a difficult balance, of course. But you can kind of look at the mind and see, you know, what is its reaction to this pain? Oftentimes we'll find that when we decide to move because the body needs to move, the mind's not so kind of like grabbing onto it. It's more calm and collected. And we say, okay, you know, my knees, I've been sitting for like an hour and a half. My knee, there's real sharpness in my knee. I need this body to practice adequately. So let me, out of compassion for myself, you know, move my leg or something. And then, you know, while you're moving, you're practicing. While you, after you've moved, you're practicing. You know, it's not to say that, oh, now my, my leg is out here, I can't practice anymore. Whatever your body's position, there's always the ability to continue doing the practice. So I wouldn't really put too much of a uh, worry about it. Just, you know, keep doing what you're doing, whatever the body's doing. I still have trouble with intrusive thoughts grabbing my attention. I can be in the middle of a good session and whoosh, 10 minutes are lost to an engaging thought. When does this get easier? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'll let you know when it gets easier. But I, I think I mostly went into that. Basically, when we understand why thoughts are distracting in the first place and what makes the mind leave whatever we're doing, we come to understand why it is you know, that we get distracted in the first place. We can also, you know, reaffirm our determination. Um, what I like to do when I start uh, doing a, you know, I guess you say formal sitting, is reaffirming, you know, why am I doing this in the first place? Like, why am I going to sit here quietly for however long and do whatever? Reflecting basically on the reasons why we practice the Dhamma at all. Why, same thing with why we do metta. And if the mind keep, continues to get distracted, you can bring your, your thoughts back to that reflection and you know, remind yourself that, oh, although the mind wants to go look at that thing, in fact, the most pleasant thing is attending mindfully to whatever I'm doing, at least in the long term. There has to be, again, this long-term kind of thinking that we get, where although... You know, maybe it's not very pleasant to have this mindful attention right now. Maybe I'm bored or something. Maybe my knee hurts, whatever. In the longest term, it's the best return of investment, so to say, as opposed to thinking about whatever, you know, 
nonsense thing comes to the mind. Those, those thoughts don't even usually do anything. Like, you know, you think about something's going wrong at home and you think, oh my God, I don't know what's happening at home. Well, you're thinking about what's at home isn't changing what's at home. You can again see the real futility of these, a lot of these distracting thoughts. How just the mind trying to grab control of things and control, you know, everything. The mind thinks that, oh, if I just keep thinking about that again and again and again, well, maybe something will come of it. I'll get some flash of insight about the situation or, I don't know, use the power of attraction and change whatever's going on at home or something like that. And all these kinds of, you know, false things. So a lot of the same things with regards to anger can be applied to distracting thoughts too, seeing how they're not good for us, how they're futile and, you know, don't get us anywhere. All these kinds of similar things like I, uh, you know, talked about during the Dhamma talk. Other than the Karaniya Metta Sutta, what other suttas discuss Metta? <coughs> um, well, there's quite a number that do. A few of the other ones are, um, let's see, I think it's called the Metta Nisangsa Sutta, though I could be butchering that pronunciation. That goes into like 11 benefits of Metta. I, I briefly referenced that. Things like, you know, going to sleep well, getting up well not having bad dreams, being agreeable to other people and humans, um, even to as far as being reborn in the Brahma world, for everyone who's interested in that kind of thing. Um, there's, yeah, it, it comes up fairly often in a few different contexts. Um, one that's particularly interesting, it's, uh, I think, the 62nd Sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya. I think it's called the the Pali is escaping, but it, Bhikkhu Bodhi translated it as doors to the deathless. And that's what the Ananda uses um, metta and the other four Brahmaviharas as an idea of you can use that to attain insight, which is something I'll talk about in uh, my guided meditation on, um, I think it's Friday I'll be doing it again. But essentially, the idea is that, you know, whenever we're practicing the four Brahmaviharas, experience as it is, is still there. It's not like we're um, prevented from seeing things as they are while practicing metta. You can see the nature of, again, the five aggregates whilst practicing metta and see, you know, the relationships there still. The added benefit being that now the mind is hopefully a little more tranquil and calm so you can kind of really see things better as opposed to if your mind were angry and distracted and so on. Oh, wait, there was another question. Uh, Do you have any advice for those just beginning to study the suttas? Sometimes they feel like a foreign language. How should we begin to study them? Is there an order to follow? Well, yeah, it's definitely hard because there is no order to them. They're, in fact, fairly random. They're grouped mainly by, like, size. And in the Sangyutta Nikaya, they're grouped by topics. So that can be kind of interesting. But I think the easiest place to start with like a sutta compilation. For example, Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote a book in the Buddha's words, an anthology of the Pali Canon, which, you know, it has different chapters on different topics, as well as an introduction and sutta references. So that can be a very good place to kind of get your feet wet. The other place people typically start out with is the Majjhima Nikaya, just because 
the suttas there are a bit more engaging because, you know, it's kind of like middle length is what they're called. They're usually about like five to eight pages, almost like a short story sometimes. And there's a wide array of topics and very famous uh, suttas that are referenced in the Manjimini Nikaya. So that's a, a good place to you know, just kind of read through. And you can oftentimes find, like sometimes online, like recommended suttas in there, like what you should read first or what are the ones that have been most prolific in terms of our understanding of the Dhamma. Uh, I can't reference any off the top of my head, but I know they're out there. Every morning, Bhanteji says, there is no concentration without wisdom, no wisdom without concentration. One who has both wisdom and concentration is close to peace and emancipation. Is this from a sutta? Can you comment? Yeah, that's found in the, uh, the Dhammapada. I don't remember the exact location, but it's somewhere in the second half. Basically, there's this idea that, I, I mentioned it briefly, these concentration and wisdom really work in tandem with each other. One simile that I've used in the past is like, wisdom is like a knife, concentration is like a sharpening stone. A sharpening stone by itself isn't going to you know, cut through defilements or ignorance or whatever. Yet at the same time, neither is a dull knife. So concentration sharpens wisdom. And so in that kind of way, they also work with each other. So for example, we begin to understand the mind, why it gets distracted, why we have unskillful things. And that wisdom allows us to become more concentrated. The more we understand the mind, the more we can also concentrate the mind because we understand how the mind works. So in this kind of way, these two things almost necessarily have to work in tandem. Some people develop one more first than another later. Some develop the other one first and the other later. But ultimately, they both have to come to you know, full development and uh, you know, completion in order to do what we need to do. I practice metta for myself during meditation for my pain, i.e. legs falling asleep, hip hurting, back, etc. What are your suggestions regarding bodily pain during meditation? Move or be with it? I think I, I, think I answered this with a, a previous question, basically saying that it depends. Obviously, if there's pre-existing injuries, then definitely go on the safe side. But a lot of times, a lot of the pain we get in meditation is not really anything worth necessarily getting all uh, worked up over. It could be things just like stiffness or, you know, just the body hasn't moved in a long time. And it's kind of, you know, the body's used to being in motion. And it's kind of like, what's going on? Right? So, you know, you, you think of even just sitting in a normal chair. You're, you know, shifting in the chair and you're trying to get comfortable. But it's not really any pain that's, you know, putting you in danger at that point. At the same time, also, there is the considerations of, you know, if the pain has certain characteristics and qualities to it, then it might be time to give the body a rest. But, you know, again, as I mentioned, it's important to just maintain mindfulness of the intention to move, the moving itself, the feelings present there, and so on, and then, you know, keep doing whatever you were doing. Regarding comparison, since identifying an object as equal to yourself is in itself an act of comparison, should the mind be directed to such thinking as we are all, we are all being? 
in order to avoid going down the road of comparison, what are your thoughts? Um, I guess I assume you mean thinking such as we are all beings, like we're all you know humans or whatever. Um, but even then, that's a conceit. You know, conceit's quite a hard thing to uproot. In fact, in terms of the stages of enlightenment, it's the, one of the last things to go. The coarse kinds of ideas we have of, you know, I'm better than him, I'm worse than her, whatever, are really the grossest manifestations of it. <clears throat> but so long as we have what the Buddha calls just basically the conceit I am, that's asmi mana, you can see asmi means I am, mana means like measurement or conceit, the conceit I am, our, our view of ourselves is how we compare ourselves to the world. We take something within the five aggregates as us. Hence, then, we uh, you know, have this idea that I am, that arises. And then we judge the world through the lens of that identi identity we kind of cultivate and build for ourselves. So it's not necessarily a matter of thinking, you know, oh, I'm equal with everyone, even though that's you know, a nice thought. It's more a matter of uprooting the conceit I am itself which comes from disidentifying and turning away from clinging to the five aggregates as me, mine, myself. So quite a more deep and detailed matter that I unfortunately don't have more time to uh, uh, talk about. But that's the kind of the gist of it. This is another question about where to start with the suttas, so I answered that. And now our old friend we've been waiting for. In your talk on anger, you brought up the five aggregates. Can you clarify and explain the importance of understanding the aggregates? I, I save this for last because frankly, this could be a retreat in itself, like the five aggregates retreat. In fact, that's not a terrible idea for a retreat. Maybe you'll see that next year, now that you've implanted that thought in my mind. Basically, in seven minutes or less. Um, the five aggregates are what constitute an arisen experience. So in any given experience, there's these five things, there are five categories. There's form, feelings, perceptions, intentions, and consciousness. To briefly define those, form is obviously, you know, um, our body, or even, you know, outside forms. The body needs to be there for there to be any experience at all, because the body is that which contains the sense bases, like the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, and so on. So if there's no body, there's no experience. There's no anything, because there's no sense bases. There's feelings, whether something's... It's kind of the affective tone of an experience, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral not particularly pleasant or unpleasant. There are perceptions, which kind of label qualities and details of things within the experience. So it can be a wider range of things. For example, the Buddha sometimes uses taste for perceptions, like we have perceptions of sour, perceptions of bitter, perceptions of sweet, perceptions of salty. And those are, you, those are paired with generally feelings, although the feelings and the perceptions are separate. So there may be a salty a perception of saltiness that we find pleasant. There may be a perception of saltiness that we find unpleasant, probably depending on how much, how strong that, 
you know, perception of saltiness is. And you can generally apply that to anything, things like color or, you know, sharpness of, you know, bodily feeling, the feeling is sharp or soft or, um, you know, feels like something's cracking or something like that. Basically, that which identifies what is this kind of experience. Intentions are um, on a basic level just the idea of, you know, we have intentions to do things. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, we intend to go here, go there, say this, say that, whatever. But it's also kind of the significance of any arisen aspect of our experience. So, for example, if I see uh, this cup, right, in my experience of this cup, there are certain intentions there. Specifically, because I identify this as a cup, the intention that this is, you know, for drinking from arises. And there's kind of this weighted um, array of intention. So, for example, this being for drinking out of appears more strongly in my experience as opposed to, you know, throw, as an object for throwing at someone. Because I've used a cup more often for drinking than for throwing at people. That's what its general use for, is for. So there's this weighted array of intentions in any given object. And then finally, consciousness is, you know, just the presence of anything at all. The Buddha says that there's two things in the all of experience, name and form and consciousness. So name is like feelings, perceptions, intentions, attention and contact, along with form. And that is what is cognized by consciousness. That is what appears and is identified within the realm of our you know, conscious experience. So now that I've confused myself and confused you on all that, um, <clears throat> the significance of these things is that essentially they're everything in our experience. Anything that we have can be categorized in one of these five categories. And so these are the, all the things that we cling to. We cling to them as me, mine, myself. When we cling to something as mine, the notion I am also comes to be. Because if something is mine, it points to a fact that I am someone for whom something can be mine. And so it's by disidentifying with these things that we free ourselves from suffering. And that we do through the three marks of existence, the Buddha calls them. We see that the five aggregates are impermanent, and also out of our control, we don't have mastery over them. Since we don't have that, they're unsatisfactory insofar as you know, we'll cling to them, they'll change, become otherwise, and then suddenly our sense of self is undermined. We think, oh, I change, what's going on? There's a lot of confusion and anxiety that can arise. And then we, when we're seeing those two things, we then say, these are not, my, not me, not mine, not myself. And this frees the mind from getting affected by the changing of those things. The five aggregates stand in the world, even after enlightenment for a time, but they turn from the five clinging aggregates to just the five aggregates. The clinging is gone. And the, the simile I'd like to use to try and understand why this is so is uh, the Buddha once was talking to some monks and they were in uh, the forest. <clears throat> He said, what do you think, uh, monks, you know, if some patch of grass or a tree or something caught on fire, would you, you know, be affected by that? 
And they said, no, not really. Why is that? Because the tree is not mine. And then, this isn't exactly what the sutta says, but this is what I like to say. Um, the Buddha, allegedly in my little world, says, what if your hair is on fire? Well, suddenly a big, big difference. If, like, you know, we have a fire going in the wood stove, you know, what do you think about the wood? The wood saying, oh, help me, I'm on fire. But we don't care, because it's not us. But then I set your hair on fire. We say, oh, you know, we need to keep warm, so we're going to burn your hair. Thank you very kindly. And then suddenly you're very angry at me because I set your hair on fire. What's the difference is that the hair is me. It's mine. It's myself. And so this is a very coarse example, but the same thing can be applied to even the various aspects of the mind. When we see that the mind is, in fact, or I should say the five aggregates are not, we're not the masters of them. We don't have full, total control over them, what they do, how they change, the fact that they change at all. Then the mind turns away from these things, and it doesn't get affected by whatever happens to them. So you set an enlightened being's hair on fire, or robe on fire if they don't have hair, or something like that, then they're unaffected. There's still the painful feelings of the body burning, but the mental clinging to the body is gone, and so they don't have that associated mental pain. The Buddha compares it to like, you know, usually we get hit by two darts when we have pain. We have one dart, which is the physical pain itself, and another dart, which is the mental pain. The bodily pain is always going to be there so long as there's a body, but the mental pain is an optional thing. That's that dukkha that the Buddha talks about. So as I mentioned, of course, we could do a whole retreat on the five aggregates, and they're an extremely important topic to do that I frankly have not done justice to in seven, well, I guess it was eight minutes. So I highly encourage you to, you know, continue researching and, you know, reading the suttas and understanding what these things are in your experience, because they're really the toolkit of our wisdom. If we're working on our tool bench, we have to understand the proper identity and use of our different tools. Likewise, within our experience, we have to be able to identify, you know, what is the feeling? What is the perception? What are the intentions? What is the consciousness here? As opposed to, you know, mislabeling them and confusing feelings for perceptions or intentions for perceptions or whatever, whatever. So that's extremely important to do, but unfortunately not in the scope of this Q&A and this retreat. So that's all the questions, and we just hit right on time. So I want to thank you for submitting your questions, and I hope that you continue to practice well during this retreat. So thank you. <laughs>